Political Unmuted is a weekly politics show based in the northeast of England. The audience chooses the topics and we discuss them. So enjoy Political Unmuted. Welcome everybody to um, Political Unmuted. Um, sort of, uh, you just have to ask. Uh, have the new flashy graphics all come into play yet, or, or, or are we yet still still uh, waiting for them to exhibit themselves, Paul? I think I think they're there. I think the audience will tell us whether or not they're there. But um, yeah, yeah, I think they're there. We warned you it was going to be fantastic. So welcome, everybody, to the 31st edition of uh, Political Unmuted. Um, you know, I struggled to find anything important about the 31st. Uh, no, it's the 32nd this week. I found, found it. I struggled to get anything about the 31st, but there's loads about the 32nd, which is this week. Just listen to this, uh, the, the number 32. Um, okay. It's the sum of the totient function of the first 10 integers. It's the fifth power of two. It's a Leyland number. It's the ninth happy number. It's the year Jesus was crucified. It's the number of piano sonatas by Beethoven. It's the freezing point of water in Fahrenheit. It's the size of a data bus. It's the number of traditional counties in Ireland. It's the common meter of rock and roll. And a beheaded body can make 32 steps before it well dies. Done. <laughs> so... What an edition! And it's also the edition when we got the flashy graphics. Tell us what you think about them. We can't see them here. We, we, we've just been told that we've got to be very, very, very still. <laughs> I've not got to go like that. Sort of, this is a disaster. And if I go yeah. like that, sort of, we're in real trouble. I've just got. To you can feel like you're trapped. You can. You, 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 that's the way you've got to do it. Like you're trapped in a box. So, yeah. <laughs> And I mustn't come too close either, because I, I guess... Anyway, there we go. So, so we've got all these rules, and uh, welcome to the show. Um, we're having tremendous fun here. And my golly, we've got some stuff to talk to you about. Um, let's just uh, meet the um, uh, the team. Um, first of all, hi, Paul. Hello. Congratulations on your wizardry. Um, hi, students. <laughs> so lovely to see you. God bless. Uh, Samantha, we'll be back to you in a moment, a few moments of the week, of course. And Laura, hi. And, and what kind of a moment of the week you've got to tell us about. Well, let's uh, let's start on those, those now. Laura. Oh, hang on. And Laura, moment of the week. Uh, so my moment of the week this week happened on Friday evening. Um, most people who watch this will probably already know that the amazing Barbara Clare has stepped down as Sedgefield CLP my secretary. Wife. She's not stepped yeah. down as my wife, by the way. No, she's, she's no. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously she'll be a huge miss. Um, and I was elected to try and fill her shoes. So I'm the new Sedgefield CLP secretary. <laughs> Which I was really excited about until everybody started going, Ooh. <laughs> like, oh, oh, what have I done? It'd be brilliant. The first thing Laura did, everybody, was sack me as secretary's helper. So um, <laughs> I got the letter today. <laughs> you have been sacked. Um, okay. Fantastic, Laura. Congratulations and well deserved. Um, a major issue. 
about a person's right to be an individual in their own right and judged as an individual, not uh, in the light of the person to whom they are married, by the yes. way. Yes, yes. I do like to be considered as someone, not just Paul's wife, human. but you know, clearly I've still got work to do on that front. Such Somebody a rabid wants... feminist, Laura, wanting uh, to be a human. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, someone wasn't best pleased that all the power was in one household because Paul's obviously the chair. Um, I guess that person sees the role of power. chair and secretary very, very differently to the way we see it. We see it as a facilitator of things, not a power hungry grab. So anyway. Anyway, thank you for stepping up. You, you, you're absolutely valued in your own right as a human being. And um, thank you. <laughs> I'm sure you'll be brilliant. Um, okay, who am I going to do next? I'm just moving from right of my screen to Sam, moment of the week. Well, I have not only been inducted, but I have also booked my first shift as a vaccine marshal. Hey. So um, basically that's a posh way of saying, I'm going to a doctor's surgery tomorrow to help people find their way around a one-way system and smile encouragingly at them <laughs> to try and make them feel, I might, if I'm really lucky, get told to stand out in the car park with a sign that says, this is the vaccine center. Um, so yes, uh, eight till one tomorrow, I'm volunteering in Bishop Auckland at Station View Medical Practice to help them get people vaccinated, which is obviously brilliant. It's, it's fantastic. Barbara went for her um, her injection on Saturday um, and uh, drove to Bishop Auckland and drove down and there was a lady who no doubt you, um, sort of, but not you, um, <laughs> sort of, um, and uh, sort of, uh, she came over and she said, are you having the injection? Yes, we're having the injection, right? Well. Uh, get your mask on and um, sort of uh, what do you do to birth and what's the number and you get to ask the number and then sort of she stepped back and she waited till Barbara got out of the car and then she said, took her through and, and guided around the one-way system within and, and she was out in five minutes. Yes that's the plan is to get people in and out and that's kind of that's that's the job. Almost 10 million people injected that's a fifth of the population almost. Fan Dabby Dozy, eh? And all down to people like you. God bless you. Um, and, and 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 rush those doggies through. Let's get everybody. Absolutely. Let's get, come on. Let's go. <laughs> like I'm going to Richard on here. Talking too much, Sam. I go sort of. Uh, and I'm just a facilitator, and I'm talking too much. I apologise to everybody. But you see, the thing is, is that all these variants they come out because the the virus is being transmitted so time so many times it's having all these opportunities to vary and and sort of if we could get down the fact that there were very few transmissions and it was all going sort of if we just get it going there wouldn't be as many variants and we'd be a lot safer so um we've got to get everybody done and if you if you're listening and you're one of those people who says oh, not right sure about it i'm going to see how it goes get yourself done save lives Wash your hands as well. Um, okay, um, next person, um, Stuart, moment of the week. Oh, uh, Paul Howell uh, gave his bit, bit down at uh, the Houses of Commons, virtually, I understand. And uh, he uh, enlightened us with his wisdom, 
speaking about his real world perspective on uh, Cladden, Grenfell Star Cladden and uh, issues around it. He was actually supportive of tight uh, restrictions, you know, to, to make everything safer. He was very supportive of what I think is a, a very cut and dry situation. And when the time came to vote, he abstained. So he was completely in support of the vote and he abstained, just like every you know, Tory MP has abstained on an opposition motion since since forever, basically now, isn't it? Yes, well, it's certainly in living memory. <laughs> <laughs> so to, they don't seem to get that what you say with the, your lips is meaningless unless you do it. Yeah. It, uh, it, it's absolutely worthless, isn't it, if you just say these things and then just don't back it up you know it's it's considering people died you know th this is a, a national tragedy grenfell to be able to say these things and then do note about it that's just a that's a a bit of a betrayal to those people yes it, and 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 those poor people caught in that situation where they're being asked for tens of thousands of pounds they don't have and they can't afford to to uh, sometimes more than they paid for the flat to change the cladding mm. and and sort of and it all boils down basically to a, a developer's cheat had to be furious me but there we go um sort of anyway thank you for drawing attention to that i think um uh it's somehow insidious to become always watching what your mp is up to but he saw that role and i think that it's good that people are watching what he's doing and how he's doing it, holding him to account. That's what we um, have the right to do. Thank you so much for that. And um, finally, Paul, moment of the week for you. Um, so my moment of the week is the political education project, which launched yesterday. This is, um, mm. this is a really, really good scheme and it aims to get people who aren't necessarily um, educated in the world of politics into political education in a really accessible way. The people who are running it are really, really lovely. Um, we've got one of them, uh, Paul O'Connell, is coming on the show on Saturday night on a socialist think tank. So that is, that's a really big thing for us. And also we are actually contributing to that because what we noticed is there's these, there, there are these big passages of reading to do. And a lot of the words in there are actually quite hard to to understand to comprehend like you know you've got to go and do your research on them anyway so we we decided um after the research after the papers came out to um to run it as a podcast we asked permission and said can we read these as a podcast to help support people who maybe they might be dyslexic they might just not have time to read they might struggle they might have struggled with all the words they might have just been put off by the like by the language of it all so um yeah i spent uh four four hours reading this thing trying to um trying to per like perfect my audio book voice so uh, one of those has has been released it's a james connolly speech and the other is a really long passage it's going to be a, a couple of hours i think but it's a uh, hal draper so hopefully people who are involved with that and are doing that will get the opportunity to um access that course in a in a 
in an easier format or even if those people who you know just commuting and, and want to hear it or people who want to read along or people who want to pause it and go and find out what these certain things mean but i have to apologize because some of my pronunciation must have been really really embarrassing so um and apparently you have a very sonorous and attractive voice I've, apparently it's a it's a it's a like very much like ron burgundy it's it's soothing baritone so yeah <laughs> not teddy wogan uh yeah it could could be wogany yeah yeah so with the, <laughs> with the irish side of me and stuff maybe it's more wogan than uh burgundy but uh i don't think either of them are particularly cool so never mind you're not <laughs> you think how much money wogan made yeah if if your teaching career ever goes upside down, there's your there's your new new form in life reading out um, audio books. God bless you all. Thank you for your months of the week. Um, and um, so I've turned the um, show on its head. Today we're going to start with the other stories first, and come to the big story last. So now it's time for. We get more like Wayne's World every week. Here we go. Um, the, um, I'm going to start um, with with Samantha because um, we've been talking about uh, Paul Howell a little and and sort of and being critical of him. But in fact, you you're quite um, you've got something quite positive to say about him. But we'll have a chat about it. Um, sort of um, these, of course, listener. Uh, the, these are questions you've supplied. I, I, stop making the questions i just ask you what we you what you want to talk about and, and and this one was should other mps follow paul howell's example and avoid travel to parliament during the pandemic so uh good things about paul howell sam is that the case well, they, there's one um <laughs> no i don't i i get on quite well with Paul. well actually right up until the point where he became an MP, like that might point during the, the count when his votes got counted, suddenly he got a le less less nice to me. But anyway, uh, I met him a few weeks later and it was fine. But so I don't have a huge lot uh, against Paul Howell. Uh, long time listeners will know that I used to be on John's radio show with Paul Howell quite regularly um, when he was just a just a counsellor. Anyway, the point is, you know, sometimes you've got to give credit where credit's due. And the fact is, Paul Howell has decided not to travel down to London while there is a pandemic, which you think, well, maybe that's like basic, but a lot of other MPs are still making that journey. My MP, Deanna, is still making that journey to physically present in the House of Commons. And I do not think it is necessary travel because they've got it all hooked up for video links you can have your you zoom into parliament to to do your speech and do your thing you can vote remotely and um, so i don't see how you make the case that it's it's essential travel to go down to london a 300 mile journey um to be in parliament even if it is your place of work lots of people are working from home at the moment uh, but also 
what Stephen says, we're 10 months into the pandemic. It's a bit late now. It's never too late. If your house is on fire, to call the fire brigade, right? It's always worth slowing things down a little bit. Um, at the end of the day, these MPs are coming into contact with lots of people who are doing necessary work, manning the trains, uh, keeping like transport going. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're putting other people in a harmful situation as well. So, but we've got to take a step back and say, the government should have said right from the start, we don't need MPs in parliament. And the reason the government has kept MPs in parliament is because it's Jacob Rees-Mogg who's got the decision and he likes the pomp and ceremony of it. And he thinks it's barbaric to think of MPs working from home. Um, I think we need to normalize MPs working from home. Uh, MPs working from home uh, long-term after the pandemic opens up the job of MP to lots of people who are maybe uh, disabled or come from poorer backgrounds who might not be able to uh, fund. Uh, you do get paid, obviously, and you do get expenses, obviously, but those don't come like ahead of time, you've got to fund yourself first and claim those things back afterwards, you know, so it's very expensive to start being an MP. So we would be opening that door to people who are from less affluent backgrounds. And I think that's a really good thing. Thank you. Um, Laura, do you agree with Sam that brownie points to Paul Howell and who should be Henna? Or do you think... <laughs> You think, do you stand with uh, the, the sisters and decide that, you know, we've got to go down, we've been elected to parliament and that's where I'm bloody well going to go? Um, well, no, I, th I think, yeah, credit where credit's due, we shouldn't be there. But it's, um, it's, it doesn't really mean very much when they still vote for schools to go back and they have the choice of, uh, they didn't, they extended their leaves, so they didn't have to go back in time. It's all, to use one of his favourite words, just a bit disingenuous, but absolutely, I don't think the MPs should be in, but I also think that schools should be closed. <laughs> so um, that is a much bigger conversation, but essentially, yes, I, I agree with what someone said. So basically, you don't judge an MP on whether he's there or not, you judge an MP on how he votes. Yes. Thank you very much. <laughs> Stuart, sort of, um, he's your MP. Are you pleased with your MP? Pat on the back, Tom. Pat on the back. I, I oh. thought that like not going to work, if you could work from home, was the minimum of what you're supposed to do. You know, millions of people are actually doing this and they don't get a pat on the back. So well, well done, Paul, for doing exa exactly what everybody else sent to do. In fact, for doing what he's told everybody else they've got to do. <laughs> so, 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 so maybe I'm just expressing surprise that here we have a Tory doing what they've told everybody else to do and, and sort of one rule for all of us. I mean, it's, it's a remarkable and surprising thing, sort of how <laughs> I'm being very naughty. Um, Paul Daly, um, sort, of, uh, sort of if you were an MP, uh, which is sort of the desire of most of the Labour Party in Setchfield CLP. If you were an MP, <laughs> would you be going down, yes or no? Uh, no, no, I, I wouldn't be going down. Um, I don't think it's worth either going to London and maybe picking up COVID there and then bringing it back to the northeast. I don't think it's worth um, going from the northeast and taking maybe a new strain down to London. 
Um, if it were up to me and uh, and I were an MP, um, that would probably be the only choice I would have just to just to look after myself, I suppose, because it really does take a massive effort in government of people who know what they're doing in order to have some sort of strategy that would have stopped this whole mess. So everything they do, it, it's all about the individual, isn't it? It's all about a Tory kind of, you know, everyone's an individual, everyone chooses their own be- best path and everyone's responsible for themselves. There's, there's collective responsibility. It's all collective, collective responsibility, but they're absolutely terrified of the idea of anyone getting the idea that, um, that, you know, we can collectivise. We do have this collective responsibility for each other. And um, I think this. I think it's all related to that. It's this attitude where, like, oh, well, you know, he's all right because uh, he didn't go down to Parliament. Um, but, you know. Yeah, thank you very much indeed. Um, sort of, um, so generally, um, Paul Howell, we're, we're pleased that you're not going down. Um, sort of, but maybe you can just think about some of the things that you're voting for um, and the things you're doing. Your government needs to pick up on the things that matter. Um, okay, now one of the joys, people. Uh, question two. The, one of the joys of um, sort of asking you about the questions is is that sort of in the past I've known all the answers because I've chosen questions that I knew something about because it's interested me. And one of the joys of asking you is there are some things that, that I just think I don't know anything about that. So I'm going to learn along with most of the listeners uh, today. Um, and sort of, uh, I'm going to go to Laura, and I'm going to ask her to talk about, uh, it's really topic two rather than question two, the amount of money the government is taking out of the miners' pension fund. Now, I don't know anything about this. Laura, can you tell us what on earth it's talking about and, and, and sort of what the issue is? I mean, I can try. I'm pretty confident. I know a bit about it, so probably more than you. Um, but I'm sure we've got listeners and um, viewers who know a great deal more about this than I do. Um, so in a roundabout way, uh, the British Coal Board was um, privatised in 94. So at the time, they had to renegotiate pensions. Um, and it was decided that any surplus income that they got from those pensions would be split 50-50 between the people who had the pensions and the treasury. Um, since then, I think they've, they've made like a ton of money. I'm talking millions, millions, and it hasn't gone back into the um, to the pension pot. And I think in the last five years, it, it's something like five millions being taken out of it. Um, so, so their mine workers and their or their widows or, or what have you, the families aren't getting anything and I think in 2018 the pensions had gone down so low that they were getting something like 80 pound a week 84 pound or something um and since then even more has been taken out of the pot so um I know that um there's been a letter written by a a team of MPs I think 50 MPs to the um business energy and industrial strategy committee um to ask them to sort of just have another look at it and see if they think it's correct and if it, sh- it really should be reviewed again um so they sent that quite a while ago and then graham morris who's really heavily involved he's the for people who don't know i can't imagine anyone who doesn't know graham but he's the mp for easy up here he's fantastic he's been behind this for since day one um he's sort of been speaking on it in parliament as well and this letter's gone um 
to that committee and they said they were they are going to have a look at it and have a look at renegotiating terms um boris johnson has also said just oh my god last i want to say last year but it was 2019 see last year doesn't count because <laughs> nobody did anything um he said that no minor um would be out of pocket so he hasn't fulfilled that pledge he hasn't stuck to it as yet but um i think the, the most recent letter was sort of um had a little dig at that just saying uh, they look forward to no minor being out of pocket which i thought was a nice touch to the letter but it is being looked at again um and there's plenty of people behind this issue and there's plenty of sort of minors families and and ex-minors who are, who are pushing this issue because effectively the treasury has taken money from them that belongs to them as I understand it. <laughs> I mean, when you're talking about people of that age, you're talking about many of them dying before they get justice, if you're not careful. Well, yes, and that, and that is the problem. And that's why I think Boris is probably going to be able to get away with what he said, because he said um, no mine worker will be out of pocket. By the time if, if he sort of puts a hold on this being looked at again and renegotiated, by the time it gets done, no mine worker will be alive to be out of pocket. It'll be their families that are out of pocket. Um, many of them are, are deeply ill. Many of them have many lung diseases and other problems as well, yeah. directly related to the work they did. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. And that's um, the, the illnesses, pneumoconiosis, and uh, Heather Wood tells me all about the just terrible, terrible diseases you get from mine. And, you know, these people have worked solidly in a really dangerous environment they deserve their pension they shouldn't have stuff taken off them so yeah it is it's it, it, i think it does need to be relooked at thank you um anybody on the team have you got a comment to make paul stewart sam stewart first uh and we are so scared that the government's going to switch the the miners pension scheme from uh the rpi uh, inflation index to the the cpi inflation index as well, which is like a sneaky cut, so that like over a 10 year period, that difference over those two uh, inflation indexes works out with like 8% or something, which is like a huge cut. It is, yes. Um, the um, <laughs> so of, um, CPI's consumer price index, and RTI is the retail price index. And uh, the CPI is always lower than the R RPI. Paul, you were you indicated you want to speak. Uh, yeah, I think that um, we've got this situation now where we've got COVID, and a lot of the time there's this idea that you know these people with underlying health health conditions are you know somewhat expendable. You know, or there's this like big right wing narrative at the moment where well, there's only X number of people who've died who didn't have underlying health conditions. Look at all the mine workers who have um, underlying health conditions, you know, um, COPD and, and 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 asthma and you know these other diseases related to working in mines that mean that you know working class people they work harder than a lot of people who you know. I think this is this is a big retirement age thing as well, where like the Tories keep on pushing retirement age up and up and up and up. And it's like I could probably I could probably sit in a boardroom when I was ninety and tell people what to do, but I couldn't go down a mine. Like not that we can go down mines anymore, but I couldn't lay bricks or I couldn't be a teacher or I couldn't do any of these things that that people do. 
And um, it's this kind of view of the world. Yeah, they've got an underlying health condition that they got from their job. They're not getting compensated for it. They're having the pension taken from them. And it just seems to be lose-lose for people if you work hard. There's a bit in the Bible that I always quote, which is those who have shall not be given and those who have not, even what they have shall be taken away. And that's, that's just um, how it is with the Tory government. Um, Sam, last word on this from you. Yeah, I mean, I'm just just reading around more and falling down the rabbit hole myself and seeing people saying that, you know, they, they've only on £80 a week pension. There's stories about widows on pensions as little as £8.50 a week. And it's just heartbreaking, isn't it? You know, these are skilled people who worked hard for the benefit of the country, mind, not for their personal advancement, not for their personal profit building. Um, and they've been messed around. There's a story I've just seen there saying the total, the total amount that's been uh, gained from this pension fund by the government is more than three billion pounds right there is there is no justification i don't care right if i made an agreement with somebody and then a few weeks later it turned out that actually we the agreement was unfair and they are now impoverished by the agreement i would revisit the agreement because i'm a i'm a a caring human being who appreciates other people's suffering. I just can't think of a justification for the government taking three billion pounds from a collective number of people who are on pensions of eighty pound a week, uh, pensions of eighty pound a month. It's ridiculous. I think it's almost five billion now. I think, um, yeah, it's gone up. <laughs> So it's a case, Laura, of the fact that sort of we don't want nationalisation uh, when uh, sort of the industry is running and uh, sort of we want to privatise it. But when it comes to um, payments of pensions, we want to go back to the time when it was a, a government thing and it wasn't privatised at all and, 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 and sort of we want control of it. Is there a hypocrisy there in, in, in the government's position or have I got that completely wrong? Absolutely. I mean, it's greed, isn't it? I think um, they only want the stuff that's doing well so they can make money. And if it's doing badly, the public will bail it out. It's, it's a tale as old as time in this country, as far as I'm concerned by now. Um, I fully expect them to do the same if they are allowed to take over the NHS completely. And don't forget that the vast majority of it is now privatised. Once they start to descend that into complete anarchy and a complete mess, that can't function they'll give us a back <laughs> so yeah that's... let me just ask you one question before we close laura um if somebody was outraged by what they've heard and wanted to get involved wanted to make their voice heard on this what would you advise them to do um so there's a lot of information online about it but um it depends where you're from I, I'd, I'd really consider if i was wanting to get involved, getting in touch with Graham Morris or his office, because um, they've done some really good work on this. Um, and as I say, Graham's sort of leading the way for us up here on that. Um, and, and just see if they can sort of sign some petitions or, or get involved in the letters that they're writing um, and, and see what sort of um, protests are being organised. Sadly, at the minute, there's not a lot we can do, but there are petitions out there. And I was there, I've signed one myself earlier on. So <laughs> get that signed and get it brought can you put the link to that petition onto the, the comments yes. and um, Graham Morris thank you very much indeed God bless you and um, uh, congratulations um,
Thank you very much. Um, uh, we are on time for the first time for a long, long time. Here is another thing. I don't have a clue how it works. Um, Paul Daly, and here's your here's your, your, your question, and everybody will be interested to hear how this works. Robin Hood Reddit group beats the rigged system after a hedge fund tries to profit from the struggles of the business GameStop. What on earth is that gobbledygook about? Paul, explain. So this is this kind of really wonderful exposition of what happens in financial circles. So what happens is, and I don't think people realise this, I think people think that people invest in good companies and if they do well, then, you know, they make a profit and it's risky. And if they do badly, then they they might lose a little bit of money. And that's how you lose things on the stock market. But it's actually much, much, much more complicated than that with the increased financialization of money itself. So people making money because they've got money and gambling on money lent to money. And it's also like it's it's like an, an inception like um feeling where you're just going down this rabbit hole and you know so anyway what happens is you can do something called shorting against a company and shorting against a company is if you think a company is going to do bad then do badly then what you can do is you can say i will borrow some shares from that company and i will sell them on at the price they are worth now and I know that what they'll do is they will um, they will fall in value, but that person will still owe me the money. So it's also like becoming a middle person in in someone losing some money. Um, and we saw that this caused the world financial crash, shorting, um, because what happened is a group of people started to realize that there were these really, really bad mortgages. So people started shorting against... Um, against mortgages which had never been done before they were meant to be this safe investment and uh they did like it didn't turn out to be such a safe investment after all because they were bundling up really bad loans well anyway what's happened is this group of people on reddit um got together and said right they're shorting against this company gamestop now gamestop is a games company that doesn't retail on online um, so during the COVID crisis, they're doing badly. And someone said, I'm going to make money out of their misfortune and started shorting against them. But the way the stock exchange works is if you buy a lot of shares in something, the share value goes up. So this group of people said, we're going to buy all these shares in this company. So this company's share price went through the roof and this hedge fund was, was en- ended up with these having borrowed lots of money, like sorry, lots of shares, and they had to pay them back at the price they were now. So they, they massively inflated the price of them, and then they had to pay for that, which bankrupted a hedge fund. And then they went, oh, no, you can't do that. It's not fair. You've used this rigged system against us. The system's meant to be rigged in our favour. So, like, they're cry- crying foul. And I think knowledge of what goes on would appall most people like the way that money is used the way that like failure is used and the idea of um you know so jacob reese mogg's dad was a disaster capitalist he advocated shorting against lots of things um jacob reese mogg shorted against the british pound for example 
um, and then do something that causes the share value to drop so that you make money. Um, and and this is the system. And, and a lot of people thought this is what was happening in Brexit as well. Um, they thought they were trying to short the British pound for a short-term gain, short-term financial gain. So. Thank you. Um, I mean, Elon Musk, I understand, was one of the ringleaders um, bringing down the hedge fund. Uh, sort of which you could have some money to be able to buy lots and lots of shares, I suppose. Um, Stuart, any comments? That oh, was fun, wasn't it? <laughs> Saying that, you know, the mystery of, of it uh, all, all come crashing down. You know, the, the wizard is exposed. And uh, it was a quick turnaround on them um, shutting down, you know, the trading capacity for, you know, regular people. What was it? The, t the two major sites. What is it? Trading... 212 over here and another one in America. You know, our right to, to be in this free market taken away. <laughs> to stop us bringing down the hedge funds, is, are you saying? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? The revo Who would have thought that the revolution would have consisted in buying shares? I mean, <laughs> don't you find it a bit alarming? Sam, have you got any comments? I'm just like, I'm really like, even then, Paul's explaining it so well, and I'm just physically incapable of concentrating <laughs> on the words, but it's great. <laughs> <laughs> well done. I have no it's idea what that is. At our level, <laughs> Sammy. Watch that you film. Laura's like <laughs> put a film on. I'll watch that. Yes, do that. <laughs> Laura, very briefly, a last word before we move to our uh, fourth topic. If anybody is feeling like Samantha and myself, watch The Big Short. It's about the financial crash and it is explained. It's funny because the film's like really difficult to follow, but then they stop it and they have a famous person explain it to you in really simple ways. Oh. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> Get it watched. It's absolutely devastating. The anger, if you're not really annoyed at the end, you haven't watched it properly. But also another thing I want to point out is the same week we watched The Big Short, we watched Fahrenheit 11.9, um, which was sort of another devastating film because it was a true story about rich people getting richer. And at the end of that, the fella in it, I forget his name now, Paul and though, um, he started buying up um, shorts in water um, and they just left it at that. And I was like, oh, God, what's going to happen? So people are buying up stocks of water and shorts of water, I think, because they're going to sort of, I don't know, nationalise it, make it too expensive and then the whole world will fail and then they'll get rich. So, yeah. Uh, that's the thing we don't want them to, 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 to buy up with shares. Thank you very much, everybody. Um, it's just rather strange that we're sort of um, no comments at all about the evil of a world dominated by finances. You all did very well there, sticking to top. Um, and the last of all, um, uh, Stuart, just where we, 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 we are a couple of minutes behind, but uh, sort of um, uh, your, your topic of, of, of the uh, night was um, should the right to food be enshrined into law? Before you say yes or no, tell us a little bit about the background to this, please. Oh, the background, you mean that the, the hundreds of years struggle to make sure uh, you know, people have a right to survive? Yes, that's, you can start that if you want. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, I think the obvious answer is uh, 
it should be, of course, enshrined into law. It isn't currently. Is it? There's, there's very little in the way of protections on uh, something as basic as as having access to food, and not not even good quality food or nutritious food, just food. So, and obviously, if you disagree that people deserve the right to food, you are the bad guy in a Dickens novel. You know, <laughs> you're, you're the the type of person Roald Dahl made the bad guy if you don't think people deserve food. So, yeah, and for me, it, it shouldn't just be food. It should be nutritious food, accessible food, you know? And it, it's, it's not a contentious topic, is it, really? in the real world i don't i don't know how politicians make this an issue that gets debated round. you know there's very little that you really need enshrined into law as basic as food maybe energy security housing security food security that, that's the basics of your back to beverage in these five giants really uh, if truth be told you have a right to live um, so, to, Sam, have you any comments about this, the right to food? Yeah, I mean, I, I work for the co-op. I am not speaking in my capacity as an employee of the co-op. But one of the things that we talk about is part of, like, the ethos of the company is fair access to food. Um, because, actually, when you talk about it in those terms, fair access to food is people have an access to food isn't it like there's no way you can talk to somebody and go you're you're you don't deserve access to food <laughs> you know um and the fact is 25 percent of all of the food produced goes in the bin goes in landfill you know for lots of ridiculous reasons like your eggs speckled in all the wrong ways or your bananas too straight <laughs> you know um you know we we uh got a delivery from tesco the other day there were two cute cucumbers um if you send one back is it going to go in the bin because it's contaminated or is it going to go back on the shelf you just don't, those are the types of massive food waste we've got in this society so um i know in Sheldon we've got Sheldon Alive who run a fantastic food waste project and they literally you know they get so much of it that there is never a shortage of stock of food waste there is always more waste that can be uh, given to people and it should be given to people because it's much better off in bellies than in bins we've got a company in newton aycliffe that makes gas out of the food that people throw away it sort of, it sort of powers hundreds of you know, homes and biogas um, just, just out of waste food. And there's people starving to death. I mean, it's just uh, uh, an arse up world we live in. Laura, um, should uh, the right to food be enshrined in law? What would the benefits of be if we were to, in, in, is there any point? What's the point? Well, I, I have to say uh, um, it shouldn't have to be, <laughs> but I think, um, I think this lockdown and, and even previous to that, we're, such a we've got such a rich economy we shouldn't be living in a country where children are going hungry and they have been for years you know we I know plenty of teachers who've seen kids picking food out of bins just to feed themselves you know it's it's pathetic it, of course people should have a right to food um there's a there's actually a, a consortium called just fair who've they've been funded by loads and loads of um, different companies and they sort of monitor and um, and investigate human rights 
um, and it's human rights contained in the, I want to say, international covenant of economic and social and cultural rights. I think that's right. Somebody please collect, correct us if I'm wrong. But they, they're talking about having the rights to food, um, but not only that, housing, education, social security, all things that should be a human right. Um, and I know there'll be people out there who say, well, you should get a job then, feed your kids, stop buying cigarettes, stop going to brothels and all of that. But no, that's that's not how this works. If somebody's starving, we feed them. That is a society I want to be living in. And children are starving, not just children, obviously. But um, if it if we've reached this point in a country like this, then yes, absolutely, it should be it should be law. Um, the thing that I always say on this kind of thing is is that about the the right. This is, you know, when you talk about the right to food or the right not to be um, sort of reduced to poverty and things like that, you always get somebody who turns up and says, "Well, the people down our street, they get all their money, and and they, they lot of fireworks on on bonfire night, and, and sort of so you know, they got people giving back their free food and things like this." And it's like it's sort of the right not to be tortured. I mean, there are some people who like being tortured, and there are other people who torture people. But that doesn't take away my right not to be tortured. And the fact that some people abuse the right to food doesn't take away my right as a citizen living in this country uh, to be adequately fed. It's, it's, I think it needs to be added to our list of human rights. Um, sort of, and I think it's amazing uh, that, that, that it should ever be questioned. They're trying to get it into this kind of food report, aren't they? Um, uh, so that the, the people who are studying uh, food um, actually put it as a, as a right into the recommendations of the report. They're trying to, to, to persuade them to do it. Um, Paul, last word on this. And you've got literally two minutes. I'm going to stop you talking. Okay, um, so I would, I'm going to go down a different route. I'm going to go down an anthropological route. And, um, you know, do, do humans have any rights whatsoever? Because a lot of the time you hear the arguments against rights are, well, you know, um, you know, if these people, you know, they wouldn't survive in the wild, if, they, you know, they wouldn't be clever enough to do this and that, and, you know, they're wasting food. And it's quite like a, a silly argument. We don't have any kind of biological rights biologically we don't have any rights we like neither do animals or anything like that but we choose to have them we choose what's right we choose to have morals and we choose to have a certain set of values and that's what we call our rights and if people are saying you know people shouldn't have the right to food they're just being indecent really I think people should have the right to food given that we throw so much away I think that's quite obvious and I think most decent people would say that Biologically, you could argue, you know, no, you know, we should be out foraging or, or hunter gathering or something like that. Biologically, that's where we are. But we've evolved beyond that. We haven't evolved physically beyond that, but we've kind of um, through our myths and through our legends and and through our collective consciousness, we've decided we're going to be better than that. So are we going to be better than that or should we just go back to you know, hunter-gatherer times, you know, maybe we'd be happier if we did. I don't know. But those people who argue against human rights, that's basically the argument they're making. Uh, just to, to finish off on this, i got two things to say. The first thing, you're absolutely damn right. What happened was that sort of in the past, big, strong people took stuff and then they made laws to stop bigger, stronger people taking it off them. That's what a law is. It's so I can keep what I've got without having to be sort of fight for it. 
and so forth. But if we're going to have laws which protect property, then those laws have to enshrine rights of people as well. And we can't have a situation where laws protect one set of people but don't protect the other. And so the other thing I've just the only thing I've got to say, and this is for the listeners, um, when this was being, being debated in Liverpool Council, the assistant mayor uh, released the information that people on uh, minimum wage, if they were going to eat at the standard recommended by the government for healthy eating, 70% of their wage would go on food. And there you expose the hypocrisy of the system. Right, and of course now what we're moving is to on time. Ah. Now it's time for the big story. And the big story, thank you to the person who um, asked this. Should local candidates think about a five-point pledge going into the local elections? And what would you want the first two of those pledges to be? So I'm just got a short time to go to each of my uh, supreme team and sort of uh, what two pledges. Stuart, you're a candidate. What are your two pledges, your two prime pledges? going to be to your uh, electors as you try and get them to vote for you? Uh, I would imagine that uh, the fly tipping situation that's going on, you know, countywide uh, needs addressing in uh, a different way. Uh, I've got a background in waste disposal. Uh, you know, I believe that we can build proper re relationships with licensed waste removal people. We, we need to tackle stuff quicker. We just need a new way of doing things. If we, if I could go out and secure funding and uh, a, a means of being able to tackle things quicker, that's what I'd do, I think, is my number one pledge. I think, yeah, absolutely right. I mean, as a, as a councillor, if you let it lie, it grows and it fosters a sense of couldn't give a damn about the environment in the local residents. Second pledge. Well, uh, you know, I've got a background in litter picking. I'm, I'm really quite interested in improving the environment around us. I think it's a really social, you know, socially valuable thing to do. I would, I would really love to, to foster, you know, job creation in that area because I think we depend too much on volunteering to keep our, our world nice and safe and secure for everyone on like these really small things like litter picking, making sure there's no glass around the the kids parks i think we can build teams that you know invest in our communities and make local jobs um basically two things to enhance the environment in which people are living and i, I think that the clean and green team would welcome you onto the council with open arms because we don't have enough people um picking the litter and, and looking after that side of things. Thank you, uh, candidate. Sam, you're a candidate in the local elections. What will your two main pledges be? You're muted, Sam. I get the prize for the person who was muted. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I um, similar to what Stuart was talking about there, but because 
one of the problems I've had with fly tipping is you report it to the council and I always have to report things online to the council and reporting things at like midnight and in between sorting out kids lunches I can't phone um, so I report things and then they don't get dealt with and I get no feedback and I think that's a huge problem. And I think members of the public are finding this a huge problem as well. You know, we if there's a, if there's a reason you can't move it, and there's a lot of land in Shildon owned by Network Rail, and we can't move things off their land. And I understand that, but there's so much of it, I don't know where it is. So I need the council to come back to me and the members of the public need the council to come back to them to tell them, why they can't do the thing they've asked them to do uh, and there's a big gap there and that's one of the things that i'd be looking to, to two fix seconds on before it. you move on thank you that's a brilliant one i i get cross about that as well if you report something as an individual online make sure you get the case number and if they don't get back to you go to your county council councillor and get them to play hell we must feed back that is a brilliant pledge and I will get them to feed back. And you've got the means as a councillor to get stroppy enough about it to make sure that they change the systems to do that. Brilliant. Second pledge. Um, second pledge is, is actually just holding regular surgeries. It's something that we, we've fallen out of uh, the habit of doing in children. Um, and we're starting with it with it with the town council i think having online things like zoom as an opportunity to use is is a good thing um but literally yes booking in surgeries finding somewhere covid willing that i can go and sit for half an hour a month to actually talk to people i just think um people feel like they're not being listened to and the only way to fix that is to actually listen to them i mean I, I don't like surgeries. I think they're a waste of time. It's the same three or four people who turn up. You sit for an hour in an empty hall and nobody bothers to come. I've found um, uh, getting involved in social media um, mm. exposes me to the full wrath of the public <laughs> a lot more than, than, than the, the surgeries ever did. I mean, what you're talking about is accessibility. Um, or do you believe in the surgery as, as per se as a way forward? I mean, you know me. I am social media. I <laughs> I bleed social media. So to, to for me to to say be be visible on social media wouldn't really be a pledge. It would be a description of what I already do. Um, so I just think. Um, the argument is that I am too accessible on social media, which makes me inaccessible to people who are not on social media, a certain age demographic. But I agree with what you say, because I have held surgeries before where no one's come and you're just like, oh, this is frustrating. But I'll, I'll find other things to do. I'll take my knitting with me. Paul and Laura have talked about in our campaign setting up labour listens um, sessions of some kind whereby we just sit there and, and people come along and ask us difficult questions and, and, and we see and, 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 and we answer if we can and we go and find out if we can't. Um, uh, it's sort of um, a brilliant point, thank you. Um, Paul, you're not standing to be a county councillor. What would you wish um, your candidates top two pledges to be? 
Um, well, you kind of stole my thunder a little bit with the with the listening thing. Um, I'm a fan no, of. Uh... No, no. <laughs> it's all right. I'm but, but, um, but, I'm for bottom. I'm from bottom up organizing. I'm from bottom up for bottom up socialism. I don't believe you can do top down socialism. I believe you you can't just go in and tell people. Tell you what you need. You need this. The first thing you need to do is ask people what they need. Now, like that is my sincere belief. People will tell you what you want. You might have an idea about the solution or something. You might help them solve their problems. But the idea of just deciding what people might want is a really challenging one for me. And I think people are sick to death of it, to be honest. That's what, when I speak to people, they're sick to death of being told. And they've been told again and again. And that seems to be where the Labour Party is heading, as far as I'm concerned at the moment. We're just going to tell people what they need to hear in that like kind of Fabian style. Um the the other thing that I would do um so, as well as you then Paul can I because I, I was going to have my two and the first one and you've stolen my thunder. So the, the first one is is what happens in the county council we have such clever officers and such motivated and clever councillors in charge and they see a need and they go away and they talk very, very clever with all this knowledge and money and, and, and ideas. And they come up with a strategy and then they get the strategy. So it's absolutely watertight. And then they put it out for consultation. And everybody says, oh, I don't like that. And I don't like that. What's this? Oh, for goodness sake, this is stupid. And they listen. They say, well, we've listened to you and we're going to ignore everything you say because we are convinced that this is the right way to do it. And then they get terribly hurt. When, in fact, what is probably the best plan of all anyway, but nevertheless, and my big deal with them is, is we need to start listening at the beginning and find out what people think about the problems and be open about the fact that we have a problem here. What do you reckon about this problem? And then take those ideas and build them into the plans. That sort of the public need involving right the way through the creation of the strategy in a much more proactive way. We haven't got that right. That would be my number one pledge. What was that? What was your number two pledge going to be? Uh, number two was very similar. It's participatory budgeting. There are there are there are really good reasons to do this, particularly like Durham County Council. If they've been doing it properly for years, I know Simon Hennig tried to do it a few years back. If they'd have been doing it properly, then imagine having a meeting where you're doing some participatory budgeting and everyone's saying right, okay, and this means what what you go is you say right to the community, what shall we spend our money on? And you go along, you have a meeting, you decide on your priorities and maybe have a vote on it and allow people to participate and decide on what the priorities for their ward, for their village, for their town, whatever it is, they can decide on those things. Imagine at the, in 2010, if this was set up properly, imagine the uproar when all those community groups come in and they say, right, what we'd like to spend our budget on. Sorry, the budget's gone. It's all been spent. Um, the Tories have cut the budget they would understand what austerity did to our communities, but people don't. They've been, we have been sold this ridiculous bluff, and it's because we haven't been open and honest about what it is. We coddled people. We said, actually, you know, we, as 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 Labour in Durham County Council, we're going to protect you from the worst excesses of this austerity. We're going to protect people from that, and in protecting people from that, without telling them about it. People think that it's all come from Durham County Council. If you had participatory budgeting way back, then people would have gone, well, where's the money gone? 
The central government's taken it away from us. We don't have that money anymore. We can't build that park for the kids. We can't do those brilliant community groups anymore. We've got to stop that youth club. That would have been so powerful and that would have led to a Labour government in 2015, in 2017, in 2019 because people would have known what absolute damage they'd done. That was my second point. <laughs> the fact that we need a Labour government to protect us against austerity because it's destroying us. Brilliant points. Laura, your, your husband has taken away all your time. So just very briefly, what would be your two key pledges be? I mean, I can do it really quickly because I can't really add a great deal more for me. Um, listening to people more, whether that be surgeries or online or whatever, um, and trying to find out what the issues are from the people that you are there to represent would be a good start, as you say, at the beginning of a project rather than at the end. The other thing for me, community groups. Um, and it was just really eye-opening for me because I'd never really been part of a community group. But when you see the work people put in um, for various reasons, you know, we had the Diverse Women's Network, we had a Trinity Tots, which looked after kids, we had some ch a chanting group, and it was all these things that made their little communities better and things that were important to people where they lived. I think if councillors got in and mixed with community groups in their area to find out what they're doing in the area and worked alongside them, I think that would um, go a long way to, to um, sort of build relationships there as well and, and, and grow the community. Thank you very much indeed. All about relationships, listening, um, uh, and sort of um, and responsibility. Thank you so much, everybody, for those pledges. Absolutely uh, brilliant. Um, so that's the end of the show. If you weren't interested today, then my golly, what's the matter with you? Sort of, um, you've got the wrong programme. Uh, thank you for the Supreme Team. Now, always what happens is we're going to play um, a sort of the, no pass around, and then we're going to come back. Sam's going to take over and take us through. We've got other streams where other people have been listening to, and they'll come in and we'll hear your comments and the wonderful things you've been saying uh, about what the Supreme Team has been saying. So, so uh, if you've got to go, goodbye. See you next week. Thank you so much for the honour, uh, giving us the honour of, of listening to, to us. We're, we're, we're fine. Um, otherwise, see you back in about five minutes um, uh, to, to, to just uh, chill out in the in, in the chill room, um, um, sort of, and, and hear this lot um, be just a little less guarded about the things that they're saying. <laughs> uh, goodbye. Thank you very much. See you in five minutes, perhaps. the red flag flying here